last week, Israel had presumptuously gone to battle against the Philistines. We are in the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel. We're in this series right now, Lessons from the Kingdom for Today. And we've been, we've been making our way through that time in the history of Israel in which uh, they are moving from the period of being led by the judges out to the time of the kings. Well, last week we talked about how Israel went to this battle against the Philistines and uh, they, they did not seek the Lord. They suffered the consequences. They, they'd lost badly hoping they could paint God into a corner, you might remember, and secure his, his help by dragging the Ark of the Covenant into the battle line. They then called for Hophni and Phinehas, the two priests. Well, in fulfillment of prophetic judgment, they were both killed. The Ark was captured, and upon hearing the news of it all, Eli was in such a state of shock that he fell backwards on his seat, broke his neck, and died instantly. And then Phineas, one of those wicked priest's wives, went into labor and named their son Ichabod, meaning the glory has departed. It was kind of a dark chapter, if you missed it. Um, I, there was a good message in it, though, so go back and listen if, if you uh, were not here. But one of the things that were shown in this week's reading is that while Israel has been disciplined by God, certainly, and her enemies judged, God's glory and presence was still very much at work, despite the ark having been stolen. Phineas's wife's uh, despair was certainly appropriate in understanding this terrible thing that had happened and the ark being, being taken. And, and she, of course, named her son out of that grief. But God wasn't done working, nor was he uh, hindered from working simply because the ark was seemingly lost. He's not limited by whatever factors we imagine might hinder his greater plans. And that's something helpful to remember and hold on to. Because sometimes we can view circumstances and interpret them and think, oh, well, now God's hands are tied, X, Y, and Z has to happen. Really? Because the last time I checked, that's all up to him. And he operates and works in ways that we can't even understand his ways are higher than ours, he says again and again in Scripture. So despite the sense that uh, impending doom is all that can play out at this point, God is doing more. Idols, which we're talking about quite a bit today, are funny things because in one sense they're, they're empty, and in another they're a representation of, of demonic entities, but they are lesser gods. They're, they're, of course, they're certainly found in religion, but they're also present in secular life. I think most of us understand that. You don't have to go to a, a temple or a shrine to experience idolatry, even in our, our post-Christian, secular, uh, atheistic culture. We live in a world that's rampant with idolatry. An idol is that master passion of your life, that, that thing or pursuit into which you pour your energies, your focus and attention, that for which you live. The church father Augustine wrote, idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used or using anything that ought to be worshiped. Hear that again. Idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used or using anything that ought to be worshiped. It goes both ways, secular and religious. Psalm 135 gives us some insight into the dangers of, uh, and folly of idolatry. Verse 15, the idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Verse 18, those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. You and I are becoming, we are being made into the image of what we worship. Whether we realize it or not. 
Are you worshiping Jesus Christ? Then you are becoming more like him day by day. But if you are in fact worshiping some lesser God, you can bet that thing into which you pour your affections and your attention, it's shaping your heart and your mind. It's changing you. It's making you less than God intends you to be. And just like the psalmist writes in, in chapter 135, that God that can't see is going to make its worshiper incapable of vision. The, the God that cannot hear is going to cause your, your senses and your ability to hear to be dulled, can't, can't feel. We, we, in fact, will become increasingly insensate as our senses and our ability to perceive and see as God would have us to is taken from us as we pour our energies into idols. Let's pray, and then this morning we'll, uh, we'll be looking at actually a couple of chapters. Father, as we open your word today, we pray that you would cause our eyes to be open, Lord, because some of these things that we're talking about, God, our, our natural senses would just bypass it. Lord, we might make excuses for ourselves, but God, you, you want to set us free. God, you want us to walk in the light, and I pray that that would be our desire this morning as well. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning, our message is titled, When Idols Fall, and we're looking at 1 Samuel chapter 5 and 6. If you grab the outline on the way in or outside at the connection table, you can follow along and take notes. But God wanted to free Israel from this misunderstanding that somehow these, these lesser substitutes could take his place in their lives. Remember, they'd really, they'd really made the Ark of the Covenant into an idol. That's how they were treating that, that object that was meant to help facilitate worship. God wanted to mercifully reveal himself uh, as well, though, to the pagan Philistines. He wanted to work in his own people's lives, but at the same time, he wanted to touch those who had out and out rejected him and only knew the worship of idols. Now, as I mentioned, today we're going to be taking two chapters as we look at 1 Samuel and follow the story of what happened after the Ark of the Covenant was stolen from Israel in battle and how God worked through that tragedy to reveal himself and his power both to the Philistines and to Israel. And frankly, how he's working in our lives and in the lives of those around us to do the same today. Each of us, each of us is guilty of idolatry in our lives in one form or another. We have things that we trust more than God. We become taken with objects and places more than God himself. We allow our, our passion projects and, and our pursuits to overtake the worship of God in our lives. And we suffer for it. And so God works to draw us back to himself, to reveal to us his holiness and his power that we might surrender afresh and anew. So I pray that that happens for each of us to one degree or another this morning. But we'll begin with verses 1 through 6 of Samuel chapter 5. Our first point is sacrilege and judgment. Not surprisingly, Israel's enemies will treat the ark irreverently. We would expect that. Honestly, any treatment of its resting in the tabernacle would be problematic for the Philistines. There was basically nothing they could do that would, would work and avoid judgment in this case. But they go a lot farther, and they suffer terribly for it. Beginning in verse 1, Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. When the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set it in its place again. Needed a little help. And when they arose early the next morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. And least the Philistines missed the message the first time, the head of Dagon this time and both the palms of its hands were broken off on the threshold and only Dagon's torso was left of it. 
Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor any who come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. But the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod, and he ravaged them and struck them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. Well, the ark having been captured in the battle at Ebenezer is brought south to the Philistine territory, to Ashdod, which was the capital of their their sort of five-city nation state. The Ark of the Covenant, it would, of course, be a trophy of war for the Philistines, a symbol not only of their triumph over Israel as a people, but, of course, over their God as well, because the Philistines knew and understood that this was an object related to worship. They interpreted it as an idol, much the same as how Israel was treating it. In their minds, what better way to show their gods, Dagon's supremacy over the God of Israel, than to bring the ark and put it into the temple before the image of Dagon, sort of in this subservient place, like a a treasure or a trophy, almost as though the ark was having to do obeisance before Dagon. But what happened is comical, right? You read the story and it's like, oh my gosh, this is pretty dramatic here. But for them, it was probably frightening and sobering, right? They enter the temple the next day after they brought the ark in, and lo and behold, there's Dagon, this statue, fallen down before the ark of the covenant. It's like God just came in and pushed it down with his hand. Wow. Verse 3, we read, So they took Dagon and set it in its place again. Because after all, if your idol falls over, you got to help him out and set it back up. We can't have Dagon laying on his faith. That looks pretty pathetic. But the next morning, it was even worse, right? Again, the idol had fallen, but this time is his palms, his hands are broken off, and so is his head. That's going to be a little harder to put back together. For this great sacrilege, this blasphemous act of placing the sacred Ark of the Covenant in the presence of, of a pagan temple, God, he physically breaks their idol. He wants them to get the message, causing it to bow before his Ark. Now, Dagon was nothing more than a statue, and the Philistines would know it. But sometimes it takes a lot for us to see the vanity in our idols. I read that uh, a, a Hideyoshi, a Japanese warlord who ruled over Japan in the 1500s, he commissioned a colossal uh, statue of Buddha for a shrine in Kyoto, It took 50,000 men five years to build, but the work had scarcely been completed when an earthquake that occurred in 1596 brought the roof of the shrine crashing down and wrecked the statue. In a rage, Hideyoshi shot an arrow at the fallen colossus, exclaiming, I put you here at great expense, and you can't even look after your own temple. He was mad at this god that he had erected that was... Uh, really pathetic, just, just an empty statue. Dagon was no more able to care for himself. No idol can. And, and just as an aside, Dagon was sort of like a King Triton figure. He was a half man, half fish. He was said to be the father of, uh, of Baal, another god worshipped in that region. And this was actually a god of fertility, as many of the gods were that were worshipped at that time. But The Philistines are scared for a long time after. They wouldn't even uh, walk across the threshold of Dagon's temple because that's where he had fallen and, and been smashed into pieces. But God's reaction against the Philistines, it was not limited to symbolic gestures. In other words, God's judgment against them is not over. He's just getting warmed up, you might say. Verse 6, but the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod, and he ravaged them and struck them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territories. Tumors! Well, what exactly was this plague? These tumors that verse 6 speaks of. Now, the King James Version reads that God struck them with emeralds, which seems to either be tumors or hemorrhoids. Praise the Lord holiday weekend, just get right at it here with the Old Testament, or tumors in, in the secret place. The idea is there were these growths that were uncomfortable in very uncomfortable places, which 
as we read on, we're going to find that the tumors actually seem to be associated with rats, because later we'll read that there were rats as well, and some of you might go, oh, wait a minute, this sounds like the Black Plague, bubonic plague, and there are many Bible scholars who believe that this probably was, because the tumors accompanied rats, and of course we know the, the rats bring the fleas, and the fleas are infected with the bacteria, and so when the fleas bite people, that was how it you know, spread in the, the Black Plague back in the uh, Middle Ages, but um, they're then infected, and one of the results are, are uh, swollen lymph nodes that do tend to be in those uh, sensitive areas. Um, needless to say, whatever it was, it was, it was not good. It was very uncomfortable. Now, while we might imagine that God is um, content to simply judge the heathen and see his ark return to Israel, I think there's more here. Despite the Philistines' ignorance and gross sin, God wanted to reveal himself to them. Think about how God had worked with the Egyptians, with Pharaoh. Remember, he didn't just skip right to the firstborn being killed. He, He ratcheted up the pressure that he might reveal himself. And I'll tell you what, the witness and the way in which God worked in Egypt to deliver the children of Israel, did it not impact the surrounding peoples? When Israel crossed over the Jordan River and came to the city of Jericho, had Rahab heard about what happened in Egypt? Yes, she had. And so had the rest of her people. And we're going to see in a moment that even the Philistines make reference to the Egyptians. They knew It was a witness to them of the power and the glory and the judgment and justice of God. And I believe that is a a major aim of his here. He's always working to reveal himself. Sometimes we can misunderstand in studying the Old Testament or not studying it and just going based on what we've heard. Well, that that was just all God's dealing with Israel. Certainly it is, his covenant people, bringing about the Messiah through them. But remember Jesus, the Messiah, was to be a light to the Gentiles, and he was. And again and again, we see God's heart not only for the Jew, but also for the Gentile. And so we must remember that when we see judgment, it's also God revealing his power and his glory. The fact that he is there to judge is showing and helping a pagan people to understand that there is right and wrong. These who did not have the law are getting a little experience of it that they might turn and repent. You say, well, well, you know, what Gentiles did that? A mixed multitude left Egypt and went with the children of Israel. There were Egyptians who departed with them, and we see that throughout the Old Testament. Remember the the Lord's word to Moses, chapter 7 of Exodus, verse 3. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, but Pharaoh will not heed you, so that I may lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. God's doing something similar here in moving his ark out of the territory of the Philistines. The Bible's full of examples in which God works in that way. In the end, none will have an excuse. All will have received some revelation, and ultimately all will confess God's glory. Paul writes about this in his letter to the Philippians, chapter 2, verse 9. Therefore also God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, let's move on to verses 7 through 12. Our second point this morning, intuition and plagues. While the Philistines were highly suspicious of the ark and almost certain it was the cause of their trials, they weren't convinced enough to completely get rid of it. And in the meantime, things get worse. Verse 7, And the men of Ashdod saw how it was and said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is harsh toward us and Dagon our God. Therefore they sent and gathered to themselves all the lords of the Philistines, 
watch and said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, let the ark of the God of Israel be carried away to Gath. So they carried away the ark of the God of Israel. So God's hand is heavy upon us here in Ashdod. We're going to move the ark along down to Gath. Uh, we're, we're going to see if we can break up his influence because, you know, it's a little bit funny when you read that, you know, like, like we're going to pass this problem along to somebody else. Um, and, and it might sound strange to us, but actually the idea of deity's power, a God's power being localized to a specific region was common in that day. And there's actually other examples of it in the Bible. It may well be that their, their thought process was God has too much power here in this Ashdod area that is the God of the Hebrews represented by the ark. So let's move it to a different city and see if that throws him off. You know, uh, it throws off his, his equilibrium or something. And not to mention, maybe this is all a coincidence if we move the ark and nothing happens in the next city, then we know it's all just been in our minds and everything's going to be okay. Verse 9, so it was after they had carried it away that the hand of the Lord was against the city with a very great destruction. And he struck the men of the city, both small and great, and tumors broke out on them. So things have not gone well now in Ashdod as well as Gath. Therefore, they sent the God, uh, the ark of the God of God, excuse me, to Ekron. So now we're on city number three. So it was as the ark of God came to Ekron that the now, but word has already reached Ekron, right? Like news is starting to get around about what happens when the ark shows up. They see it coming and they cry out. They have brought the ark of the God of Israel to kill us, uh, to us to kill us and our people. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it go back to its own place. Now they're at the point where the people are saying, let's get rid of this thing so that it does not kill us and our people. But there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city. The hand of God was heavy there, very heavy. And the men who did not die were stricken with the tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven. So it's fairly obvious the plague and dying and the tumors are a direct result of the arks having been captured and brought into their temple, but they're, they're not ready yet to surrender or to repent. So instead, they're going to move things around. They're going to explore their options, and they're going to they're test some theories. Do you know people like this? I, I love reading the Old Testament stories, and you know, our, our initial reaction is, oh my gosh, they were so stupid and hard-hearted and stubborn. And then you think about other people or people that maybe you know a little bit better. People you look at in the mirror, and we think about how long it takes us sometimes to respond to the obvious, how long it takes us sometimes to repent, to change course, to just submit to what God's Word says in black and white. God is clearly speaking to them through His Word, through circumstances, maybe through you as a friend, people in your, in your lives, that is. The Philistines didn't have access to the Word of God, but we do. But they're not ready or willing to humble themselves. They won't respond to what's right in front of them. Maybe it's a, someone who's a skeptic or maybe just hard-hearted or hard-headed. But we, we can be that way in the church too, can't we? All but ignoring the writing on the wall, literally, in favor of pursuing and pushing ahead stubbornly doing what we've always done. The lords of the Philistines, that is their ruling elders, they're, they're, they, they're consulted and it's decided in verse 8, let the ark of the God of Israel be carried away to Gath, as we saw earlier. Let's, let's move the problem. And I'm sure, that, again, the people of Gath appreciated that they're going to inherit that mess that stayed with them for a while before it went on to the next city. But sometimes in life, the pressure has to increase before we yield to God. Have you experienced that? Again, with Pharaoh, it took 10 plagues before his, his back was finally broken and he gave in. And even then, he still resisted God. Have you, have you read those, those middle chapters of Exodus lately? It's almost unbelievable how, how he gets to the 10th plague, 
And then as Israel is fleeing, he's chasing them with his armies into the Red Sea that's parted. We read about this kind of hard-heartedness in the book of Jude and how even today, some will only respond under great pressure and with the clear threat of eternal judgment. One of the reasons it's important not to neglect speaking to people and sharing the gospel about the reality of eternal judgment and, and hell itself. That not only is heaven a reality, but that so too is that place of torment originally designed for the devil and his angels. That, that to refuse to submit to Jesus Christ is to accept and to choose a destiny separated from him. Jude, verse 20, But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And then verse 22, On some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. It's sort of this idea of how we respond sometimes. I think of how Paul writes elsewhere about how our lives and our witness, to some, it's, it's an aroma leading under life, right? They, they, they experience the goodness of God through us. Maybe they hear the gospel message and they, they say, I want more. And others, it's an aroma unto death. They're repulsed by it. And here in Jude, we read some we have compassion on. It's, it's God's kindness that's led them to repentance. But, but others, we're saving them as though from, by fire. They're, they're, if they make it into heaven, their clothes are going to smell like smoke, is what Jude is saying. And, and they need that. I mean, I think everyone needs to hear the full message, don't get me wrong. But sometimes we can share the gospel with people and... and leave out those details and they can misunderstand and think, well, that's good for you. I'm glad you found religion or you found God. I'm, I'm actually, I'm a good person. Um, I, I, I'm doing okay on my own. No, actually, the Bible says you're not. The Bible says that there is none good, no, not one. The Bible says it's an appointed unto a man once to die and then comes judgment. And you'll be judged based on what you've done. And the Bible also says that our good works are like filthy rags. So if you thought your good would outweigh your bad, I hate to tell you, but it's not good enough. The reality is you've broken his law, and that's what you'll be judged by, your failure, not what you perceive to be your success. And at that moment, the full weight and judgment of God's law will be laid upon you. And Jesus will say to you, depart from me, I never knew you. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, Jesus said, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And so it would be for the Philistines and for the children of Israel. And God is pressing them, even as he is men and women today. Make a decision. Choose. Choose this day whom you will serve. Now, of course, what took place next was that they did, in fact, send the ark over to Gath, where the same thing happened as we read previously. Then the ark uh, is moved in verse 10. They sent the ark of God to Ekron. So it was as the ark of God came to Ekron that the Ekronites cried out, saying, they have brought the ark of the God of Israel to us to kill us and our people. You can see people jumping over the back wall of the city, running for their lives to get out. And, and again, it is, it is funny as you read it. Now... Finally, the Philistines determine they can't play hot potato with the ark anymore. Uh, it has to be completely gotten rid of. Better yet, return to Israel, which is where we move in chapter 6. Verses 1 through 12 is where we're going next. And our third point this morning is offerings and a test. Verse 1, now the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. Seven months this played out. I'm reading what's going on here and thinking, man, I mean, I'd be wanting to get rid of this thing a lot sooner than this. And we don't know how long it was in Ashdod and these various cities, but you would think as things escalated 
they would work to get it out sooner. But here we are almost a half a year later. Verse 2, and the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners saying, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it to its place. So they said, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return it to him with a trespass offering. Then you will be healed and it will be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. So be sure to send it with an offering, their own priests and, and diviners say. If you do that and you are still under judgment, then something else is wrong and that will be revealed. So basically that's, that's the test. Send it back, send it with an offering. If everything goes back to normal, well, then you know it was the ark. But, but the God of the, of the Jews is appeased. But if everything continues as it is, then, you know, run out and grab it and bring it back. And, uh, and, and let's try to figure out a plan B because it really wasn't, you know, their God to begin with. Verse 4. Then they said, what is the trespass offering which we shall return to him? They answered, five golden tumors and five golden rats, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. Therefore, you shall make images of your tumors and images of your rats that ravage the land, and you shall give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from you, from your gods and from your land. Now, they were, according to these pagan priests, to make representations of their affliction. Golden statues to be gifted with the ark in its returning to Israel. Crafting and surrendering these with the ark. It's essentially a clear proclamation to the God of Israel that, that they understood a correlation between the judgment they were experiencing and their possessing of the ark. They are saying, we get that this came from you. Please take it back. Along with the arks, the ark and, uh, excuse me, along with the tumors and with the rats, we'd like you to withdraw all of it as we make this offering. We're sorry. That's what's being said here. Please take judgment along with your ark. Why then, verse 6, do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? Look at that. What God had done among the Egyptians at least a century before at this point, centuries, excuse me, the time of the judges has, has passed. They remember. <laughs> and their own priests say to them, don't just don't go down the road of Pharaoh. Don't, don't screw it up that badly. Let's not, let's not have this thing play out to a tenth plague. And don't go chasing after that ark, by the way, too, okay? Let's, let's learn our lesson the easy way, if at all possible. When he did mighty things among them, and they did not let the people go, that they might depart. God's saying to them, these priests are saying, I think the Lord certainly is mercifully speaking through them, let it go. <laughs> Don't hold on to it. There's probably a word there for us, isn't there? Because we're talking about, about the idols in our lives needing to fall. And the things that God would reveal to us that we need to let go and release in favor of worshiping and serving him. And sometimes we're guilty of clinging to those things. That the Lord is saying, please let it go. Lay it down. Release it. Verse 7, now therefore make a new cart. Take two milk cows which have never been yoked and hitch the cows to the cart. And take their calves home away from them. Then the ark of the Lord, excuse me, then take the ark of the Lord and set it on the cart and put the articles of gold which you are returning to him as a trespass offering in a chest by its side. Then send it away and let it go. And watch. If it goes up on, excuse me, if it goes up the road to its own territory to Beth Shemesh, then he has done us this great evil. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that has struck us. It happened to us by chance. So the Philistines know what to do and they're ready to do it. Uh, but there's still some hesitancy in their hearts and minds. They're still kind of leaving the door open that maybe this is all some great coincidence. They're reluctant to completely give up just 
yet. So they're told to make this new cart, but, but the way they're to do all of this is, is really, it's making it hard for the ark to get back to the, the people, uh, the city f- to which they're trying to send it. They, they, they're going to have it led by these two milk cows. So they're not, you know, they're not used to hauling a cart. They're used to sitting in a barn and having milk taken from them. And their calves are taken away from them. Where does mama cow want to be? She wants to be with her calves. Well, we're going to take those calves away and stick them over here in the barn and tell her to go in the opposite direction. And then we're going to take these two cows that have never worked together. We're going to yoke them together. Basically, we're going to put two animals that don't know what to do, aren't used to working together, would rather be somewhere else. We're going to tell them, look, go that way. And if they go that way, then we know it's, it's God. He is behind this. So they built in these handicaps, we might say. Basically, they're saying, God, if this is your ark, you come and get it. You show us that it's you. Verse 10, then the men did so. They took two milk cows, hitched them to the cart, and shut up their calves at home. And they set the ark of the Lord on the ark and the chest within a chest, and the chest, excuse me, with the gold rats and the images of their tumors. Then the cows headed straight for the road to Beth Shemesh and went along the highway, lowing as they went. That means they're mooing as they go. Sorry. And did not turn aside to the right hand or the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them to the border of Beth Shemesh. Lowing. That, that meant they went, but they weren't happy about it. They're, 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 you almost imagine, we're not told in Scripture, but there would be angels kind of along here prodding them, keeping them moving forward. And they're kind of complaining, but they're doing what they've been assigned to do exactly in the direction of Beth Shemesh, against multiple odds. It's a clear sign. Despite all these obstacles, uh, that course, uh, cart rather, ran a straight course to Beth Shemesh, which was east of where they were about 10, 10 miles. These cows continued without turning. What does it take for us to finally obey the Lord, to stop resisting him, to give in, to give in to the pressure of the Holy Spirit in our lives when he's calling us to repent of a certain thing, a certain behavior, an attitude, an activity. How many games do we play with God instead of uh, just surrendering, insisting that he prove himself to us? Well, God, if it's really you, well, God, if you really want me to, It's all a sign of a a hard heart, a heart of unbelief. God wants you and I to be a people who obey quickly. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 12 warns and speaks to this. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is still called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. You see, the children of Israel, you remember when they were wandering in the desert, their great guilt and sin, it was unbelief. They couldn't accept and believe that God would take care of them. And so they constantly complained against the Lord through Moses. Were there not enough graves in Egypt that you brought us out here to die in the desert? Now there's nothing to eat. Now there's nothing to drink. We don't believe you. We don't want to follow Moses. Again and again they did that. An evil heart of unbelief. It it brings about all manner of fruit that manifests in rebellion, it, it manifests in idolatry. And God is saying he wants us to be a people who respond today. Today, if you will hear his voice. It's so dangerous to delay obedience, to put off those areas where God's calling us to grow and mature. This moment is the safest time to respond to the voice of God's Holy Spirit. Today. Today. What idol, what idol in our lives, in yours and mine, need to be laid down in favor of serving Christ 
Stop putting it off. Today is the day of salvation. The day in which we're called to walk in obedience. Now, lastly this morning, we'll be looking at verses 13 through 21 of Samuel chapter 6, 1 Samuel. Our final point, homecoming and chastisement. Finally, the ark has come home. It's within the borders of Israel, but not without incident. The Philistines, they didn't get away with mistreating and handling lightly the ark of the covenant, and neither will Israel. Verse 13, now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest. This would have been likely between May and June the time of the wheat harvest, in the valley, and they lifted their eyes and they saw the ark and rejoiced to see it, to, to see the, the gleaming golden box coming on the cart. It would have been obvious. They knew what it was. And of course, they knew it had been stolen in battle seven months before. Then the cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stood there. A large stone was there. So they split the wood of the ark and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark, that is the priests, took down the ark of the Lord and the chest that was with it, in which were the articles of gold, and put them on the large stone. Then the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices the same day to the Lord. So, so far, so good, what we're reading of, what's going on here. And the people are ecstatic. The ark has returned Clearly with a flare of the miraculous, nobody's leading this cart. It just shows up. Maybe they could see the, the Philistine delegation in the distance. They're not, you know, mentioned in terms of interaction with the children of Israel, but we'll see in a moment. They did follow, and we read that earlier. The Israelites, they, they carefully accept this lost blessing. The priest uh, remove it from the cart, no doubt according to the law, and it's explicit instructions on how that was to be done. We would imagine that they covered it. They moved it with poles. And the cows and the cart are offered to the Lord in sacrifice. And then those, those offerings, the images that the Philistines made are laid on that large rock. I'm sure to be cared for by the priests. Verse 16. So when the five lords of the Philistines had seen it, they returned to Ekron the same day. They were far enough to see what was going on. And they said, all right. That's good enough for us. Let's go. These are the golden tumors which the Philistines returned as a trespass offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron. And the golden rats. Don't forget those. Uh, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and country villages, even as far as the large stone of Abel on which they set the ark of the Lord. Sort of the boundary marker there which stone remains to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. But the chapter closes, as we mentioned before, with judgment, chastisement against Israel. Verse 19, Then he struck the men of Beth Shemesh because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck 50,070 men of the people, and the people lamented because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter and the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? And to whom shall it go up from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kirjath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up with you. Now, where did we last read of Israel before this? Charging into battle against their enemies, having not sought God, having not prayed, presumptuously assuming that he would be with them, and then seeking to force his hand by dragging the ark into battle uh, at the hands of the two fornicating priests, after which they were utterly defeated and the ark was gone from them for seven months. Had they learned their lesson? Maybe some had, but not these of Beth Shemesh. Because they looked into the ark of the Lord. What that means is that somebody with their bare hands lifted the mercy seat off of the ark of the covenant and they were looking inside. Kind of idle fleshly curiosity. The ark of the covenant that we know it was to be kept in the holy of holies, the innermost chamber of the tabernacle. And, and the, the mercy seat sat above it, and the blood of the sacrifice was applied there to the mercy seat. And only the high priest went in and was, was there with the uncovered ark, and that only once a year. 
And here are these regular Israelites just walk up and they're looking inside. Looky-loos. Wow. The Bible tells us that they're inside of the ark at this point should have been Aaron's rod that budded, the golden jar of manna, and the Ten Commandments. And maybe they thought, oh, we want to see if it's still there. We don't know what was going on. But they transgressed. They grossly violated the law of God. None of them had an excuse for this. Now, verse 19 tells us there were 50,070. That's a lot of people. 50,000 people actually doesn't make sense. And when you look at the Hebrew, which I have not because I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but I've read people who have, we actually find that this is probably one of those places. There's not a lot of them in the Bible, but there are a few in the Old Testament in particular, a handful where either numbers aren't correct, maybe somewhere down the line a scribe uh, miscopied something or the interpretation itself erred. Not the original, but the translation that took place afterwards. And most believe that what likely is being said is that out of 50,000 that were in that region, 70 died and were judged, which makes a little more sense because if you imagine where did the priests go? that 50,000 people suddenly are able to stand in a line and walk along and look inside of the ark. It makes a little bit more sense than a group of 70. Maybe the, the priest stepped away for a moment to do something, maybe a half hour, and a group of 70 formed, and were looking into the ark and pushing around to get near it. That seems to be a better explanation and understanding. But needless to say, God is quick to judge or chastise his own people we touched on that. Do you remember when we looked at the chapter that dealt with Hophni and Phinehas? How judgment begins with the house of God. God starts with his own people. We're held to a higher standard because we know more. Well, <laughs> the people get the message and they quickly sought to move the ark along. They don't want it staying there in Beth Shemesh. So they call for the people of kirjath Jerem to come and get the ark. And that's actually where the ark will stay until the time of King David when he moves the ark finally to Jerusalem. Idols have to be guarded against in our own hearts and lives. And when they fall, when God causes them to fall, we have to be careful about not propping them back up, not defending them, but instead repent quickly and turn away from those lesser gods. John concludes his first letter, 1 John chapter 5, verse 21, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Dr. Tony Evans shares about how in the movie Lily of the Fields, starring Sidney Poitier, there was a businessman in town who was an atheist. He didn't believe in God. However, one day when the town was coming together to build a new chapel for the nuns, he got involved working on the chapel. And, and Sidney Poitier, his character in the movie, asked the guy, I thought you were an atheist. The businessman replied, yes, I am. But I don't understand. You're up here building a house for God. Yes, I am. Why would you do that if you're an atheist, he asked him. His answer, just in case. <laughs> That's what we do. He writes, we keep other gods in our back pocket just in case God doesn't work out. Or we don't think God's going to come through even if we do believe in him. We keep our idols tucked away. We, we hang on to certain people, places, or things just to cover our backs in the event that God doesn't work out. In the Bible, God was never satisfied with partial commitment. When his people sought to follow him and hold on to the other gods of their culture, he insisted on complete commitment and dependence on him as the one and only true God. And he still insists on that today in your lives and mine. What is it that you and I need to let go of this morning? What idols is he calling you and I to repent of? We'll close with these words from Jesus found in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake 
will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own son, excuse me, and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Would you stand with me? Father, as we, as we close our time here together, Lord, having looked at your word, God, we want to take a moment of transparency before you. We want to take a moment to allow your Holy Spirit, we trust he's been speaking. God, you've been revealing your heart and your way to us. We want to respond. Sometimes idols are people in our lives. Sometimes they're pursuits, our passions, things that we've misplaced. Things that we should use, but instead we're worshiping. Things that we're worshiping that should only be used. Lord, we want to make that right. We want you to be the one who sits on the throne of our hearts. We want to repent this morning. If you need to surrender this morning, if you need to lay down some false god, some idol in your life, Do that now. God, would you meet us here? Would you help us to trust you? We want to turn away from those things. We want to repent. We want to place our faith wholly and completely in your son, Jesus Christ. If that's you this morning, you need to surrender in a fresh way. Would you raise your hand? I want to just pray for you. Yeah, yeah, yes, yes. Lord, for these that want to lay it down, I pray that you would meet them in that place, God. I pray that you would fill them afresh with your Holy Spirit as they repent, as they, as they lay that idol down and purpose to not prop it back up. Jesus, that by your blood, by your power and presence in our lives, you would cleanse and wash away that guilt and sin, that rebellion. Lord, we want to place our faith wholly and completely in you. We want to trust you, God. It's hard to trust you with things we can't control. It's hard to trust you when we feel like you're not moving fast enough. It's hard to trust you when we feel like you're not enough. God, forgive us for thinking that. God, we want to find our contentment and our hope, our life, our freedom in you. You are enough. We worship you now. In Jesus' name.